are listening to the Franchise Guys podcast, the show that takes a deep and loving look at each installment of the best franchises in film history. We are genre guys, so we're going to be looking at more series of that kind. And right now we are looking at Aliens and Predator, uh, or Alien and Predator, if you prefer. And we're kind of crossing over for the first time, or if you haven't listened, uh, you should go check out Alien and Aliens. Our first two shows are now available. Today, we are moving on chronologically, which takes us to Predator. I'm John Evans, and I am joined by Vikram Wheat and Michael T. Kuchek. How you guys doing, Mike? Excellent. Vic? Very well, sir. Excellent. Well, I am doing great as well. Excited to talk about Predator. It's a classic 1987 John McTiernan film starring Arnold and a host of badass dudes. Let's start with you, Mike. What's your initial relationship with this film? When did you see it? And what did you think in or around 1987? I saw it in the theater. I loved it. And then it came on cable. I watched it again and again and again and again and again and again. <laughs> so I mean, that's that's part of the uh, fascinating tapestry of my life on Earth. And uh, this one is just kind of a cool movie that I've seen a bunch. <laughs> yeah, our friend Amy Sorley says that whenever the show is on cable, like if it's not bleeped out the squares and it's, you know, violence isn't edited. She has to watch it. Like she will not change the channel. She will is basically obligated to, to watch Predator every time it becomes available. Uh, Vic, how about you? Pretty similar. I was too young, I think, to watch it in the movie theater, but I'm sure I saw it on video fairly quickly. It's one of the movies that cemented Arnold Schwarzenegger as, you know, your childhood hero. Uh, one of the things that I think is amazing about this movie is that it's sort of the perfect movie for a 12-year-old boy. Like, it's just guys and guns and explosions, and you can absolutely follow everything that's going on. But it rewards being watched sort of over and over again. And the older you get, the more times you watch it, the more you pick up on some of the subtlety and appreciate some of the performances and thematic quality that goes into the, you know, the predators becoming the prey and yada yada. It, it's just a really strong movie. And I think you can you can tell that instantly, even if you, you don't have, say, the, the sophisticated film vocabulary to say why it's so good when you're a 12 year old boy. And it's just great. But yeah, just like Mike, I watched it over and over and over again, and to this day, continue to watch it once every, probably once a year. Yeah, it is a a film that in my childhood has somewhat of a special place. I, I did see it in the theater, and it pretty much blew me away. And the combination of elements, I think, the fact that Wikipedia calls it a sci-fi action horror film, and I think that that's fair. You know, I mean, it is a combination of genres great genres and and so that gives it this really fun variance of experience i mean there are scenes that really scared me as a kid there's a lot of just total badassery you know in the in the sort of big action sequences and tough guy stuff that you, you want from a film like that. And then the sci-fi elements are also really interesting. I mean, the technology of the alien and it, the design there is all pretty effing brilliant. So it's a movie that really delivers on a lot of levels. And there's even some humor. And it's one of those films that, uh, you know, though it's not a Shane Black script, Shane Black is in the movie, but it has that 
snappy, tough guy banter that uh, it, it can fail miserably with certain films, but I think in this one, it's one of the pleasures of the movie. Mike, what are your overall thoughts about this film and how it works? Well, it's interesting that we're kind of coming off of Aliens. Uh, I would say that there are two extremely similar movies, and I think that's the main factor that kind of helped these two franchises to kind of dovetail together eventually. And Aliens, we take a team, and they've got big guns, and they're super tough. And there's a lot of braggadocio going on. And then they go out into the wilderness all by themselves and they run into something that fucks their world up. Their shit gets ruined. And uh, suddenly the tough people who are like the masters of the universe suddenly are on the defensive. And they have to, you know, come back from getting their asses whooped. And uh, I don't know if you're paying attention to current events, but we just got our asses kicked, yeah, man. Yeah, exactly. And in Predator, the, the toughness of the team is taken to a cartoony degree. It's it's almost like if it's like, you know, let's take like 10 dudes from the WWE and they're all playing Navy SEALs and they've got mini guns and grenade launchers and they've all got like cool names and uh, they're on a mission, right? And it's it's interesting, like we even, unlike in Aliens, we actually get a taste of their badassery when they attack you know, that rebel base and rescue, quote unquote, you know, rescue the CIA guy. And uh, I mean, they beat the fucking shit out of those dudes. And it's, um, you know, one of my long held beliefs that good horror comes from when you have a movie that would be of interest from the characters in their setup without the haunting element. And I think that Predator definitely plugs into that just in uh, 80s action movie degree. Like if the Predator never showed up, we would still have you know, pretty much a, a really entertaining, straightforward, you know, 80s action film. You know, and, and oh yeah, by the way, <laughs> yeah, this dude shows up I, and it takes him a really long time to play that card. We really hint at the Predator for a very long time, exactly like in Aliens. You know, I mean, it takes a, a you know, the film, t- both films take their time revealing the beastie. Yes, I, I saw a lot of parallels that we'll get into as we sort of go scene by scene here in a minute. Vic, what are your thoughts overall about how the film combines genres or just why you have enjoyed it so much over the years? It is a perfect combination of action film, science fiction film. I think less so a horror film, uh, but there certainly there are those elements, and it's not uh, it's not every movie where you see skinned human beings hanging upside down from a tree. <laughs> I think I mean it's I think tonally it bears a strong resemblance to Aliens but in terms of the structure I think it it bears its closest resemblance to Alien because so much of it is about the reveal of the predator I mean they have the that brilliant device of switching to the heat vision that gives some vague sense that there's something weird out there because you've seen this spaceship in the first 10 seconds and then every step of the way you're just learning a little bit more and a little bit more until you really come front and center. And what makes it work to me, I think, is that they both set up our uh, our heroes, as Mike said, in almost cartoonish fashion as being the most badass of the badass. So that you believe that these, you know, six guys or whatever could take out an entire village of mercenaries, but then also set up the Predator in such a way that you believe the Predator could take out every single one of them. I mean, that's your, you know, you're setting up the, the title fight of all title fights and they do that and it works. So you're really excited when they square off at the end. 
it is a a near perfect merging of action and science fiction. I think it stands right alongside Aliens. Yeah, you, you used a couple of terms there that I would relate to to sports and 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 kind of making a boxing analogy. Don, and I, Don, we're going to lose half our audience if you start making sports analogies. <laughs> Half. That's probably 80%. I'm sorry. sorry. Continue. (laughs) Well, let's see how the 2015 Pittsburgh Steelers might be a parallel to uh, Predator. (laughs) No. uh, Everyone in this movie on their defensive line. They what? They could use every single person in this movie on their defensive line. (laughs) Absolutely. Jesse Ventura definitely looks ready to be a linebacker. I'll Mm -hmm. say that. So I didn't do a ton of uh, research into the genesis of this film or its production, but I did see that the germ of the idea came from the Rocky franchise was played out at this point. And I think they were up to Rocky five or something. And there was kind of a joke around town that in the next one, Rocky would have to fight an alien. I mean, there was no one left on earth that could really give him a fight. And apparently these screenwriters, Thomas is their last name. Jim is one of them. Anyway, we'll double back to that. These screenwriters heard the joke and they decided to run with it. And this is basically the idea of like, what if Rocky fought an alien? Well, what if Arnold Schwarzenegger rather than Sylvester Stallone uh, went up against an adversary from another world? I think it's probably time to start going through this thing in more detail. And as the big picture thoughts come to mind, you know, feel free to share them. The open here is a lot like aliens. I found opens in space. A a spacecraft is traveling uh, through the stars. It's a, it's a similar kind of vibe. And I would say that I guess this is already a bigger picture comment or idea, but I think that in some ways these films are brother and sister in the sense that Ripley is the feminine, in many ways the quintessence of the feminine, and even though she has you know a lot of qualities that are at least traditionally masculine, whereas Dutch is you know Arnold Schwarzenegger's character, Dutch Schaefer, is just as manly as humanly possible. And just the whole kind of relationship of the aliens and their sort of maternal life cycle oriented way. And they're led by a queen. It's very much contrasted with the predator himself, who is again, as manly a a creature, both in his look and his methodology, as you can imagine. I mean, he's a hunter. He's, it's a very primal thing. What do you guys think about those ideas. I think that that's spot on. I, I you know, especially uh, in terms of our antagonists, it's like you know the the alien queen is protecting her brood and uh, spreading the the species, whereas the predator is a dude on safari. You know, <laughs> he's, he's big game hunting as a way to relax. Yeah, you know, it's like, it's like so. Yeah, it's like they're tough and manly and aliens, but I mean, there's a good mixture of females amongst that squad, which was very forward thinking at the time. And in this one, it's it, yeah, it's it's all dudes. It's a bunch yeah. of oh yeah, and they run they run across one chick and they, they let her tag along. You know, it's like <laughs> yeah, I mean, she's a very like, traditionally feminine character, yes, the and, Anna character in this film. Yeah, and they're a bunch of dudes, and they run into an even bigger dude. And he's he's such a tough dude that he blows like most of them up, bro. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think there's a sense in which this movie is about 
the joy of combat or the joy of, of the hunt. Dutch does a terrific job of presenting himself as this kind of moral mercenary. But once you see those guys in the jungle, once you see them storming this camp, you can see that they, they're good at this because they kind of enjoy it, much the same way that the Predator enjoys hunting. And I think that in Alien, what you see is much more reluctant heroes. If Ripley would just leave, the Alien Queen would probably never attack her. You get the sense that they might have, have just left each other alone in a perfect world. In but a perfect here, world, they would have sat down and had a cup of tea. Yeah. Isn't mothering great? <laughs> oh, but it has its challenges. <laughs> <laughs> well, remember the mother, the queen alien does kind of screw Ripley over, you know, with uh, popping the egg. I mean, whether it's on command or just, well, the oven dings, that, that baby is ready to come out. But there is a face hugger emerging as Ripley is leaving. And then she's like, you know what? And then she turns on the flamethrower. Yeah. But no, I just mean it. that I think that Ripley is much more of a, a reluctant hero. Yeah. Well, I mean, they're both reluctant. There's another parallel in the beginning of this film in that Dutch has to be convinced to go on this mission. And it does kind of line up in some ways with Ripley, other than the fact that he doesn't have experience here, but he has to kind of be manipulated into, into taking the mission. One of the things that's great about the way this opens is the sense of a relationship, an existing relationship between Dutch and Dylan. Uh, I think Carl Weathers is this is kind of his best performance. I think he's almost better than his performance in, in Rocky just because I don't know. He's he's kind of sleazy. Like, I almost feel like he, he was, you know, better cast as a bad guy than in other movies. But that early interaction, them arm wrestling and stuff is really good and yet the sense that all of this isn't true or that you know that he's being lied to or whatever seems palpable and almost obvious well you could say that carl weathers is the paul riser of this movie there you go they're, yeah, yeah they're, they're, without without you know with uh, with with more of a redemptive moment let's say of the many juxtapositions between the two films that's definitely one of the stronger ones it's the idea of that we have a team and they're being sent on a mission, and uh, by and there, there's a dude who's involved who's uh, kind of a sleazy cat. They both also come across as friendly guys at the top mm -hmm. of it. They're friendly, they're helpful, they're offering an opportunity to our protagonists uh, that the protagonists reluctantly take. Uh, and you know, similarly, in Aliens, you know, Riser is uh, you know just kind of a corporate dude, whereas in Predator, Dylan used to be a tough guy, but he's traded in the tough guy stuff for pushing pencils. When he sees Dutch, the very first thing that they do is they don't shake hands; they have to like clasp hands in like this weird like midair arm wrestle, <laughs> you know. And uh, he loses, you know, to which Dutch states, "Too much time pushing pencils, Dylan." You know? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I so want to get back it, to that. I, um, I think, uh, you know, this is a movie that immediately states to the audience that it equates strength with virtue. Yes, yes, absolutely. It's a it's a very Republican film in that way, you could well, say. Well, no, it immediately establishes that Dylan used to be stronger. He used to be a guy that Dutch could trust. And he has since decayed both in terms of his physical strength but also his moral strength. I think that's it's symbolic that he loses this this arm wrestling match. It's that Dylan has changed. He's gone soft. Yeah, he's he wears out. a tie now. Yeah, he's uh, uh, compromised on yes. multiple levels. 
Exactly. Exactly. If there's if there is a lesson in this movie, it's that you cannot trust a person wearing a tie. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) Oh, by the way, as a kid, because I'd seen a few Arnold Schwarzenegger movies up to this point, I had seen basically everything from Conan on. I was 12. And by this point, I thought of him as old Arnold, which I now find really humorous. (laughs) (laughs) It cracks me up to think about that. He's more adult looking than like in Pumping Iron and he looks like he's 19. You know, a maturity has settled in, but yeah, it's you know, still 1987. So yeah, I mean, he's marginally smaller. He's not at his biggest in terms of you know pure muscle mass, but he's still an extraordinarily fit guy in the prime of his power. So it's just kind of funny that I think of him as, you know, the old veteran at this point. Yeah. Um, And that is kind of the character he's playing. They refer to the good old days and it sells you on the idea that these guys are older, they're late thirties or maybe even early forties. And they really have kind of seen it all at this point. Also, Dutch is genuinely happy to see Dylan. Like he's like Dylan. And you know, you get the feeling that he really wants to believe or initially does think that this is the same guy that he knew. And there's just all of these little clues along the way that indicate that he's that Dylan has changed. And he's also CIA. I mean, that's that's not exactly uh, the most honorable profession in the world, depending on how you look at it. But at least in movies, it's it's definitely considered a guy that will do anything for expedience in foreign countries. And that's that's who Dylan is. And it's interesting, by the way, a side note that we call the CIA the company. And um, who does Carter Burke work for the company? Ah, yes. But, you know, I I think also I mean, this this is another of the many 80s films are kind of talking about the Vietnam War throughout all these movies. There is kind of a shorthand in 80s action cinema in which if a dude works for the CIA, unless his name is Jack Ryan, that guy is bad news. You know, he's going to double cross you. He's got some shady shit going on. And we're talking about like lethal weapons, another really good example. You know, da, 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 da. You flash forward to these days and you watch movies like Zero Dark Thirty. And it's like, look at all the heroic CIA agents that we have fighting for America. Right, right. Yeah, definitely. uh, Film's perception of the CIA has evolved over the years. We're, you know, not in the Watergate era where we're ultra suspicious. Yeah, we've we've traded in our our activist cynicism for uh, patriotism. (laughs) Not to say that this isn't a patriotic film, at least musically and in a lot of ways kind of glorifying the – the power of the of the soldier but he's also dutch is a a rogue in some ways i mean he doesn't directly it, it, you never get the feeling that he has a direct chain of command i think he's at least allowed to operate he in this specialized team with a lot of autonomy they're expendables before we had the expendables you know they're mercenaries who Take the the dirty jobs that need to fly under the radar, you know. My men are not expendable. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, we learned that uh, the mission is to rescue this cabinet minister whose helicopter has gone down behind enemy lines. And Dutch sees through it. He knows this is kind of bullshit. Then he gets to chatting with Dylan about past missions and the guy, uh, 
you know, the general has already laid out the basics of this one. And Dylan goes, you know, well, why didn't you take that one mission? You know, he seems genuinely curious why they passed on a certain thing. And it seems like Dutch is kind of not happy that he has to even explain this to Dylan. It's another sort of the first time his eyebrow really arches that Dylan, he's like, we're a rescue team, not assassins. And Dylan and the general exchange glances when Dutch says that. And I really like Schwarzenegger's read on the line because it, it suggests he didn't think he'd have to say it. And it also kind of leads you to Dylan knowing that, He's how he's going to get Dutch on board here is he's going to have to appeal to his humanity and not just tell him, you know, well, this is strategically important. So the generals like babbling about their scope of operations. Dylan immediately cuts him off. He knows he's barking up the wrong tree with Dutch and he has to spin it like, well, we can't leave our buddies behind in order to convince Dutch to take a job that smells bad. And again, like aliens, we have the human antagonist like Burke. Dylan here is a secondary antagonist, but still important. And one of his function is to convince the protagonist to go on the mission. He has to put it in good guy terms. Yeah. <laughs> terms that a good guy would understand and get on board with. You know, if he's like, hey, we're going to give you this uh, suitcase full of cash to go murder this dude out in the middle of nowhere. Then it's like, <laughs> eh, nah. But if it's like, you know, we don't leave people behind and da 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 da. Oh, okay. I'm a good guy. I'll go get him. Yep. Yeah. Else murder the fifty men protecting him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Dylan has the to. You not assassins. <laughs> it's not our style. <laughs> Dylan has to make the mission seem easy as well. By the way, it's funny that Dylan and Dutch, their names are so similar. In a spec, you would never get away with having two characters with such similar names unless you did it for some specific purpose. But he sells this as a wham, bam, thank you, ma'am kind of a mission. This also mirrors aliens in that these guys are like the colonial Marines. I mean, they've not only seen it all, they've kicked its ass. So this doesn't scare them at the outset. You know, they're going in very confident. I think that in some ways, because Dutch isn't Ripley, he's not a veteran of what he's about to experience the way that she had already gone up against the alien. I was kind of looking for a character that is like Dutch in Aliens, and I, I kind of thought that he is like a pwn, Sergeant Apone, if Apone was the protagonist in Aliens. Right. Like yeah. the the hardened the the real leader of of the military squad, uh, because the lieutenant is useless and a paper pusher, uh a pencil pusher. Like if Apone had just through the dint of his experience and toughness managed to win against the aliens, like that would be kind of what this movie sets up as. I agree, but I think there's a there's something when you look at Vasquez and, and Drake and Hudson in particular, this sense of overconfidence from the colonial marines that the part of the conflict they're setting up in aliens is their overconfidence versus Ripley's actual knowledge of what they're getting into. One of the things I like about Predator, which is not to say that I dislike that part of Aliens, I think that's a that sets up a, a nice kind of cool subtle conflict between them. But these guys, even in that in that helicopter ride, like yes, they're listening to Little Richard, but they're professional. They're calm, but they're getting ready. Nobody's talking about you know how badass they are and how they're gonna you know they're gonna kick everybody's ass. And all we need to know is where they are. These guys are quiet. They know they're risking their lives. 
I mean, I suppose you get a little bit of that from Jesse Ventura, but that's more just his outsized personality than it is him bragging about how much ass he's going to kick when they get into the jungle. Yeah, these guys receive the bravado for each other and so Yeah, yes. I mean, yeah, I think you can tell they take this seriously in a way that I think the Colonial Marines don't. Absolutely. I I mean, even though it's sold as, uh, you know, a, a cakewalk, it's, you know, not a bug hunt in their mind. Yeah. Well, and you get, I mean, I think critically what you get is the line when, when they're getting ready to jump out and Dylan says, you never knew how much I missed this. And Arnold says, you never were that smart. Um, right. You know, that's, that to me is the, the reluctance of them as a, as a team that uh, I think separates them from the Colonial Marines a little bit. Well, it is interesting that you bring up Jesse Ventura because, I mean, yeah, I mean, he, he's the one character in, in that helicopter who, uh, who actually, you know, actively fucks around. With the other characters, uh, and immediately starts pushing on Dylan. It's like uh, it's never explicitly stated if uh, Jesse Ventura's character also knew Dylan from back when he was a tough guy. But uh, you know, it, it's interesting that his immediate reaction to having this dude in his presence is to start fucking with him just to see what happens. You know, it's like uh, they, they have to sniff each other a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, so yeah, I don't think. They did know each other. I, I I feel like he's a pencil pushing outsider. Dylan is, and Blaine is just kind of challenging him. You know, he's sort of seeing, testing the waters. Like, how tough are you? Are you gonna Are you gonna let me push you around? And there's something a little racist in the in the sequence as as uh, Blaine spits on Dylan's boots. We know why he's doing it. I just explained it. But the fact remains that Blaine is a redneck. So it kind of seems it has a little undertone there. I, I don't know about that, John, because Blaine's his closest relationship within the group is with uh, uh, Luke's character. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I, I wrote that down before. um we got to that point, and obviously Mac and, and Blaine are really, really close, as we'll get into yeah. later. <laughs> um, but it just, I, like, the way that it plays is what I guess I'm saying. I don't, yeah, I don't real nasty to, habit. Wait, I don't want to get away from this without pointing out one of my favorite lines in movie history, which is, this shit will make you a goddamn sexual Tyrannosaurus. Yes. <laughs> yeah, he's talking about his chaw uh, is yeah. Jesse Ventura, and he's he's trying to give it away, and nobody wants any of it, yeah, yeah. which is why he drops that yeah. line. I think that the big difference between this and the parallel scene in Aliens with the dropship is that this is really intended to in- introduce the personalities of the various soldiers who are, you know, we saw them in their street clothes, we saw them relax, and now they're in grease paint and camo they're in their game day mode they're ready to rock and roll they're listening to their long tall sally (laughs) and uh just you know uh preparing to go into battle we get these little details about each of them mac is always shaving jesse ventura blaine has the chaw shane black tells bad jokes to the wrong audience <laughs> he's he's really trying to get billy to laugh and yeah. it does not work here i had uh, i i should have mentioned this actually uh when we were discussing our our earliest impressions of the film in college uh my roommate and i invented a predator drinking game that involved taking a drink every time shane black's character tells the joke and and billy doesn't laugh um <laughs> 
That happens like only two or three times. That happens about three times. Well, the, the killer was you, you drink every time it switches to the heat vision point of view. Oh, okay. We didn't, like, we didn't finish much. But I would say that was one of the, in, like the, you know, the, the sort of clever, uh, the, the clever bits that sort of uh, that reminded me of that time. Well, I think he only tells the joke twice and I Billy laughs. Does, I think he does it three times. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. Billy laughs the, the last time. Yeah. Uh, and the predator records that and uses it, it again later. But Dylan tells them that they have no backup, and Dutch says, "You know, this is getting better by the minute." Against his better judgment, he's uh, led them into this. He's responsible for them, like he's the leader. It's very different from aliens in in that regard. And this kind of brings me back to the idea that. Ripley is a mother and Dutch is a father in this sense. Like he is the the dad of this group. You know, he's responsible for these guys. But they both have very strong energies. You know, in her case, it's strongly maternal. And in his case, it's it's masculine. They're polar opposites on the scale, but they're both very powerful, extreme forces. And they both prevail in the end by being first and foremost human because humanity prevails because of its strength, both physically and mentally. And that never say die resilience, which is kind of what Schwarzenegger embodies in this film and most of his films. Yeah, I will say I, I, I appreciate this movie for its unabashed masculinity. You know, it's like, I, you know, uh, it's rare these days to get a film that's just like it, this is a movie about like tough dudes doing mm-hmm. awesome shit and and you know earlier I accused Predator of being a little cartoony and I think that's true but you know if we get like an analogous film like you know The Expendables like I, I mean that's written at like the level of like a Saturday morning cartoon you know it's like it knows that it's like a really silly movie whereas Predator just knows that it's a fun cool movie yeah, and that's kind of the main difference, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's like little – one of the criticisms of this film was that it had a thin plot. And it does, especially as it moves along. But I thought there was a lot of little cool things going on at, at, at this point in the movie between the character relationships and the – the Dylan and Dutch dynamic, which is much more interesting and goes in a lot of more ambiguous places than the Burke and Ripley relationship. Yeah, I remember seeing uh, an interview with, I think, Carl Weathers, and he was talking about how uh, during the production, uh, they, were weight, they, were, they were lifting weights constantly because yeah. no one wanted to be the dude to step on set and be like the smallest guy there. You know, it's like, so it's like they were just lifting weights like every second that they either weren't acting or sleeping. They were lifting heavy objects and putting them down. Well, he also said uh, apparently that he tried not to lift when anyone else was around. Like he was trying to pass it off. Like that's just his natural physique. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> that was his way of approaching this. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> So you feel like they're deep in the jungle at this point. Uh, it's a really long flying scene. So they deploy from the helicopter. It's very active camera down at the forest floor. There's a great sense of immediacy. We're there with them in the jungle. And we get lots of good shots through and around the foliage. There's the song of the jungle all around them. And then you kind of get what I think is the song of the predator. 
and it's it's got a lot of drums to it. And I think that for all the technological marvels that the Predator has at its disposal, ultimately the Predator is the jungle. It is the hunter. And these drums are African and primal and powerfully simple. I think it's an awesome theme for the creature. Better than anything on the alien side that I can think of. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? The- yeah, he's, he's yes. got a great music thing that... Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, yeah, it's, I mean, it's cool stuff, man. Yeah, and yeah, it is reminiscent. It makes you think of distant drums of the jungle that these guys are going up against the jungle itself, and they're going to lose. The whole, I think, the whole score is kind of incredible. It's it's one even more so than Aliens, and Aliens certainly has some an, an amazing score. But it's one that when you say Predator, that score pops into my head immediately. Uh, Alan Silvestri, I think, was the. Yes. Uh, the composer I, I, it's, I think it's one of the great action scores ever yeah the, the main theme is incredibly badass which is yeah. kind of more Dutch's theme and the, the human's theme or just the theme of the, the conflict between these beings it's the Dutch ultimately wins when he becomes a jungle you know yes. when he covers himself in the mud and he hides you know and Correct. uses a natural booby traps and the terrain against the predator you know, it, it's the idea that um, if you're the interloper, no matter how big your guns are, you're going to lose. But if you become one with your surroundings, if you make peace with the jungle, then you can survive in the jungle. You know, he has to go native. At the top of it, you know, Dutch and his team are the interlopers into the jungle, and they get uh, attacked by a creature that's, for all intents and purposes, you know, the jungle. It's invisible. It attacks them from out of nowhere. Da 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 da. It's later on that we realize that no, actually, the predator itself is the interloper. It has gone on safari to hunt human tigers. You know? Yes, yes, and it is relying on technology, whereas he shuns that and uses the kind of natural weapons and strategy and cunning that someone might have a thousand years ago when they were doing battle with the predator which is also kind of different from aliens because you know she wins because she embraces the new technology that is at her disposal namely the power loader you know guys i also want to point out there's one other movie that opens with a spaceship crashing on earth and an alien coming out and you can't see the alien and it kills a bunch of people in the middle of nowhere one by one and that movie is called the thing that's right that is very true yeah i thought Uh, you were gonna go with my science project but uh, i was gonna go with airbud 4 originally (laughs) uh, (laughs) airbud versus the predator (laughs) dude (laughs) i could write that in a day (laughs) i really liked uh i really liked the john carpenter he did his own remake of the thing um starman except he he took it down a different different road that time consider that whereas in the alien franchises we go from a horror movie to an action movie and Predator, it's like we start with the action movie and then the thing is kind of like the horror movie version thereof. You know, uh, but although the thing was earlier, though, wasn't it? 81. 81, that's right, that's right. Yeah, but yeah it, it is basically like, and in some ways, it's the action movie version of, you know, a, a horror movie setup. And still maintains those horror movie beats, kind of the same with that. Like, Alien still has, like, scary moments and tense moments. Well, yeah, speaking of horror movie or very tense moments uh, when they find this helicopter suspended in the jungle canopy it's kind of cool that Poncho has to climb up to the heli- helicopter to investigate it 
it's kind of a cool situation as he finds most of the bodies are missing. There's a dead pilot. Apparently, the Predator left the dead guy because he didn't kill him himself. Presumably, he died in the crash, and he stripped the shit out of this helicopter I guess taking trophies of some kind. Yeah. And, yeah, he loves his trophies. Dylan uh, overhears them talking about the fact that it's not an army taxi, it's a surveillance bird, CIA. And so the hidden agenda starts to come out that Dylan has not been forthright. And they express the idea that a heat seeker was used to take out this chopper. And, you know, the comment is, well, they're getting better armed every day. But it's obviously the Predator's arsenal that took this bird out of the air. And I've never exactly, maybe you guys have seen this movie more times than I have. You can help me out with this. I've never exactly followed what happened. So we've got 12 gorillas that took some hostages and then our six guys, like uh, the team that was sent out by, we will learn later, by Dylan to find the hostages. They then follow the gorillas. Uh, what exactly do you guys make of the the way this went down? Apparently. My impression was that the predator brought the helicopter down, and some of the guys sort of got away. But the predator kills the you know kills and skins the the handful of people that he does. And then the rebels come across it. I thought they were the ones who stripped the helicopter found a couple of survivors and took them back to the uh, base. Yeah, I think it's something like that. I mean, I yeah. think that the couple people escaped the crash and then the guerrillas took them and then the Predator intercepted the American soldiers that were following the guerrillas because mm -hmm. it's mostly the dead Americans that get skinned. Yeah. I, so anyway, uh, the theme, the drums kick in again and tell us that the, the Predator is near and uh, it's very subtle the way we build up the the sense of them being watched, but that becomes a big deal, especially with Billy, who continually notices, senses that something is out there. And uh, it's it, it's cool how initially he is very confident. He's aggressively chopping a vine and drinking this coconut milk type stuff out of it. <laughs> drinking the vine jizz. Yeah, well, exactly. This was, this was one of our, one of the rules for our drinking game was that every time Billy does something, uh, I'm going to use the non-PC term, but every time Billy does something Indian, mm -hmm. you know, like he stops and, you know, he senses something in the jungle. Um, it's, I mean, it's, it's almost offensive the way that they that they portray him. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I, I, and again, they're they're kind of you know sketched like WWE characters. Yes, I mean, exactly. Yeah. But, but I mean, if he was a wrestler, he would come out with like a headdress and war paint and all that shit. You know, it's exactly. like they're one step away from that. Yeah. You know, I and uh, you know Justin Ventura has you know a cowboy hat and sunglasses. You know, just the entire thing. So it's like you know, I, I they're playing to broad characters, true, but I don't know. I, I want. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think it's meant to be offensive so much as it's just like I don't think it's meant to be offensive in yeah. 1987 the fact that they included a Native American character is pretty impressive yeah. well uh, there's a lot of Walter Hill DNA in this movie too I remember that actor was also in uh, 48 Hours oh was oh, yeah, he? that's oh, you're right. right that's right yeah but it, like I said it's just it's that you know, this character, because he's Native American, he's somehow attuned to the jungle in a way that these other people aren't. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, you know, it's it, it's it's 
again, it, I, I'm not saying it doesn't work. It doesn't. It doesn't bother me or really offend me. Again, it was 1987. Right. But it is. It is almost amusing the degree to which you know he's just he's got this this sixth sense that damn knows it is. Yeah, well, I disagree, guys. I, I'm calling for a boycott immediately. <laughs> You've been triggered. Get, get on Twitter and start hammering John McTiernan. <laughs> Again, we're talking about the juxtaposition of horror. Uh, we're taking the language of slashers and applying it to an action movie. You know, we're, we're taking a lot of POV shots and kind of a creeping sense that someone was watching. Someone's uh, watching from behind bushes uh, specifically. Uh, we get their POVs, you know, da 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 da. You know, it's similar. I, I, and you know, in a horror movie, it would be teenage girls being haunted by a dude with a knife. You know, uh, I, again, we're talking about Carpenter. We'll talk about Halloween. And whereas in Predator, they're still uh, taking their shirts off, but now it's dudes with guns in the jungle. <laughs> you know, and uh, there's still someone ogling those half naked people, but in this case, it's a male. Yeah, it kind of goes through the same beats, you know, as a horror film where initially we've just got some stalking and the discovery of bodies. You know, we're finding the handiwork. We're realizing that there's a killer on the loose and then it becomes it zeroes in closer and closer on the characters that we know and starts picking them off one by one. Uh, but yeah, here we have Billy climbing the tree in this long, suspenseful reveal of the bodies with, you know, then a big jump scare kind of moment when the um, flayed faces are revealed behind the vines. Serious shit getting skinned and disemboweled. Like this is this is definitely something that I remember being very freaked out by as a kid. It, it's just such a horrible fate that that it would the predator would do this to someone and do it. You know, the implication is that they were skinned alive. Yeah, uh, the predator doesn't care if they're squealing while it happens. I knew these men, Green Berets out of Fort Bragg. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Anybody can end up in a slasher movie if the killer is, is tough enough. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You just have to scale up the weight classes accordingly to get a good match. And this this is also like a really, really classic beat out of both military horror and uh, a creature feature is the discovery of the prior set of people. Kind of like in the thing, you know, they, they find, you know, they discover the, you know, the Norwegian camp, you know, what happened to them. You know, it's very, very, you know, or even in like Jaws when they find, uh, you know, the dead diver and the tooth in the in the boat, you know, just all that. So, yeah, I, I yeah. mean, it's a classic beat of the genre and it's letting us know that's playing. It's an action movie. It's an action movie on the surface, but it's playing by horror movie rules. And you exactly. can see in the in the performances, I think of of almost all the actors, the degree to which this changes the stakes. Yeah, they all react in a very strong way to this. That plays into it because again, I mean, that's it's a if if they're scared, we're scared, and especially these guys. You can see that they all their game face goes up a notch after discovering this, and that's why it matters that they're Green Berets out of uh, out of Fort Bragg. Like that's not a throwaway line. That's in, that's important to setting yeah. up. <laughs> these guys got were fun. I knew these men. They were hot dog eating champions. Yeah. <laughs> this, this guy they was were, a Chuck E. Cheese. 
<laughs> they were tough customers. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a, again, we're letting the audience know that whatever got to these guys, like these guys were no pushovers. And then we've got a lot more Predator Vision here. And there's no drums with the Predator Vision. It's this surreal, ethereal kind of bottom of a pool sound. No music. There's just sound effects during Predator Vision and they're cool sound effects too. It's, it's kind of like a hum or a breathing. It has a almost biomechanical sound to me. The visual and audio effects in this film are, are top-notch. You know, they really create the character way before we see him. You know, yeah. like, and, and, and even if we never saw the Predator, we would still have, like, a really strong idea of what he's all about. Yeah, and that page comes out of the Jaws playbook for sure. Yeah. So Dylan is, um, you know, he's been pushing too many pencils and he makes up a lot. He makes a lot of noise and Mac just grabs him and basically says, Dylan can't be quiet and stop giving up their position. I'll bleed you real quiet. It's a great yeah. line. Yeah, it's, it's not only a great line. It also lets us know that he's the closest to the edge of sanity. You know, it's yeah. like when, when he gets a little nuts, we're not surprised. I mean, it's a great establishment of that arc. Yeah, yeah. Mac is always a little bit on the line. Well, uh, and it puts, because of Mac's relationship with Blaine, it does establish that they're both the two those two are the most threatened by the presence of the outsider Mm -hmm. and fucking bill duke is just amazing like he's amazing in everything but he's really good in this i love that guy oh yeah yeah Yeah, he sells these lines like nobody's business yeah he, he just really makes each stage of this character's deterioration very very vivid and believable he's got a real presence yeah, the best scenes are, are the scenes that pull double or triple duty. And yeah, I mean, in that beat, we get the double duty of A, Bill Dukes and his tenuous grasp of sanity, and B, you know, just a, a reminding of the audience that Dylan has spent way more time in, in offices than jungles. If he used to have an edge, then now it's gone. And C, there's also this weird relationship arc between Mac and Dylan in the film that yeah. becomes important and kind of plays itself out, and there's a payoff in the end. In that their fates become linked. Yeah, it's kind of like uh, the lieutenant in Aliens. It's like, you know, one, 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 yeah, right. uh, they, they, look, they look good in a uniform and they can talk the talk. By, and once you put them in the shit, then they're going to start screwing up left and right. Yeah, Dylan is kind of a combination of Lieutenant Gorman and Carter Burke. Yeah. And then Mac is kind of Vasquez in some ways. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's not a direct parallel, but there's there's some similarities there. So, yeah, knowing that the these guys are dead, our troops still believe that the rebels or the guerrillas are responsible. So now they're like, <laughs> payback time. Yeah. Uh, it, oh, it, 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 there, there is a sense that, I mean, you know, in the earlier beats, when, when uh, Dylan was trying to sell Dutch on doing this, you know, and he's protesting, no, we're a rescue team, da 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 da. But after they see not only the dead guys, but also the savagery done to their bodies, you know, now they, you know, it, despite Dutch's earlier protestations that they're not assassins, now they're just like, yeah, we're going to find these guys and fucking murder them. It's like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's very aggressive and nasty what they do to this village, as we've talked about, and we'll get to that now. They they do believe there's a couple more hostages, uh, so they are hoping to save them. 
But uh, as they attack the guerrilla camp, we get some very vague hand gestures from Dutch and he deploys his forces and summons his men and they're moving in and, you know, getting the lay of the land and painless has come out. That's what Lane Jesse Ventura uses. And I always love that gun to death, man. Oh, yeah. Oh, God. It looks like a lot to carry. There's a lot of ammo and whatnot, but it's such a badass Gatling gun kind of a weapon. My stepfather was in the army during Vietnam and said that if you used a minigun the way that they do, which is to say holding the trigger down, your Mm -hmm. arms would fall off because of the vibrations. That it is, (laughs) it, it can only, in the real world, it can only be deployed in very short bursts. But that is kind of the slightly cartoony G.I. Joe aspects of these characters. That, you know, we're implying that Jesse Ventura is so tough that he can take a weapon that's, you know, ordinarily mounted on a vehicle. <laughs> right. Rambo can walk around with an M60. This dude can walk around with a fucking minigun. If you had a proper Predator too, then you would have, you know, a dude walking around with like a tank cannon on his head. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. So the gorillas don't seem that disciplined. I mean, we've got a sentry lighting up a J, it appears. Uh, they do have some trip wires, but nothing much. And they seem like amateurs. I mean, one of these guys falls for Mac making some bird sounds. I do have to point out that this is one of the most brutal execution scenes I think you're likely to see in a Hollywood movie up to this point when they shoot that guy in the head. Uh, Uh, They do not. You're referring to the fact that one of the hostages gets executed. They, They meaning the gorillas. Right. That's the end. And you see, again, just sort of the consistency of character. You can see that trigger Arnold Schwarzenegger that, all right, you know, we're here to save people. We've got to go now. Right. Right. You're right. That accelerates this. Yeah, it adds an urgency to their attack. Yeah, so Arnold goes to the crude generator to set up this pretty nice little special effect sequence where he, with a feat of strength, he rolls this truck that was being used as a generator into the village and he's rigged it with some grenades and they go off and boom. And now we have just this pretty long sequence of butchery, just total ass kicking as our guys take out these lambs to the slot these clueless gorillas and Blaine decimates dudes with painless and it's all spectacular that was actually one of the other joys of Schwarzenegger movies back in the day was, you know, it seemed like every movie had at least one blatant feat of strength. Uh, and Conan, you know, he, he dumps over the pot of human stew. You know, in this one, he's, he's got the gas generator thing. Uh, and Commando doesn't even throw like a phone booth at somebody. <laughs> right. Even Running Man, Richard Dawson, like he throws him in the shuttle. And, you know, uh, if we're going to have like, a giant muscle man dude as our action hero, you know, let's have him at least once per movie, like lift something really heavy. Maybe they had a certain screenwriter that would come in for every Schwarzenegger movie and just write in the feat of strength. It's like how... You know, <laughs> yeah, <there's... laughs> it's like, <laughs> we need you to do a punch-up. Literally. <laughs> <laughs> you know how like uh, Vince Vaughn has to rewrite all of his dialogue or there was a guy for Jim Carrey. You know, any Jim Carrey movie had to have uh, yes. certain yeah. bits. Yeah. yeah. So... Our guys um, do help each other. Like Dylan appears to help Dutch with a warning at one point where he's like, on your right, 
and it's a nice little beat because it establishes there's some loyalty there. And Dylan is not as compromised as as Burke. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, I mean, he's pulling a fast one on them, but he's not trying to get them killed. Right. Uh, whereas Burke is, okay, wouldn't it be funny if they got impregnated by aliens and I'd shut off their cryo tanks? Like, <laughs> the thing? And it's like, yeah. You know, it's like, in Dylan's mind, uh, it was a little shady. He's kind of pulling a fast one on his old friends, but at the same time, you know, he's not throwing on the wolves. He's not throwing them under the bus. You know, he actually wants them to fulfill the mission and get home alive. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he, he at one point realizes the folly of his actions and that basically Dutch calls him out on, you know, this whole idea of them being expendable. And he's like, do you really think that you're expendable? You know, and he's like, no, you're, you're, you're just like us. And Dylan kind of, you know, acknowledges that his priorities have been in the wrong place. And that's kind of why they're, they're all here. He was probably, he was angling for success within the company, the way that Burke was, but he got greedy and he got weak, and that's uh, it's, it's accounted for a lot of the death in this film. But I was always a little disappointed with this sequence of the hapless and helpless enemy getting uh, taken out because it's so easy and it makes sense that obviously you know these gorillas are no match for our guys but it kind of feels like a canon movie the way the the dudes the gorillas just run out with the sole purpose of getting their chests riddled with bullets I could almost buy the dude smoking a J because they're in the middle of fucking nowhere. You know, mm-hmm. it's like by decreasing the threat of the gorillas, we're decreasing the, you know, the badassery of our dudes. Jesse Ventura, Blaine does get a scratch. <laughs> yes, he does. <laughs> he does get a scratch, um, but he doesn't have time to bleed. He does not have time to yeah. bleed. But I mean, it is, you know, we've gotten this far without talking about how many eminently quotable lines there are in this in this script. I mean, that's just one of about a dozen great ones. I mean, even in this, we get Arnold's uh, stick around. Well, there's back-to-back one-liners here. There's yeah. stick around and knock, knock. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm sure that the script was great going into production, but you also have Shane Black on set, man. You know, so uh, yeah, like, I'm sure that has an impact on it. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'd be shocked if he didn't contribute some of these lines. You know, you're standing around on set. It's like, can I say something cool here how about stick around yeah yeah stick around (laughs) i mean again though to be fair the schwarzenegger blueprint had clearly established the Mm one-liner at at this point so you knew they were going to be forced in there so the other hostage is dead uh we find out and from the looks of it our cabinet minister was cia there's a russian military advisor present who they've taken out and dutch knows that dylan has played him we're basically cleaning up the scraps here we get the i Ain't got, got time to bleed, and then the really equally good line: "You got time to duck." Yeah. <laughs> so Dutch is looking around, and Dylan is collecting papers. Dutch confronts Dylan on this, and he says, "You set this up. It's all bullshit." And Dylan says, "We just stopped a major invasion, which might be true." And he admits to concocting the cover story. And Dutch says, "What happened to you, Dylan? You used to be someone I could trust." And, and right. Dylan's like, "I woke up." Why don't you? Now, wait. Now, listen, because I, I want to talk about this scene just a little bit because, number one, I the again, watching it this time was struck by how much I liked Carl Weathers' performance. And I think if you watch the juxtaposition of him with Schwarzenegger in this scene, it's where you really see it. I mean, his delivery of that line, you, you know, you're an asset. You're an expendable asset, and I used you to get the job done. Got it? 
I mean, it's a that's a it's a really like it's a guy who is doubling down on his cynicism in the face of his friend, and you put that next to Schwarzenegger, and Schwarzenegger is no slouch. But John, you missed that that the delivery in that line where he says, "It was bullshit, all of it." Like it's he can't get those two lines out next to each other. I don't know. I just I really enjoy this this scene and the and the way that that uh, they perform it. But weathers in particular. But I have to ask you guys: Does anybody understand what's going on? <laughs> like, you mean like, like with the CIA and the advisors? What Carl, and yeah, what is Carl Weathers like? He says he has this very oblique. This is more than we ever thought we'd get. And it's, yeah, you know, these I, papers I, I, are important intelligence. Exactly. Like, what is it? Why is there a Russian cabinet minister there? Like, what are the Russians doing on the wrong side of the border in South America? I mean, I, I suppose there's a sense in which it doesn't matter, but it's one of the few scenes, right? I get the impression that nobody really knows what the CIA is doing here. I think it's intentionally murky that, that yeah. we're getting like kind of these buzzwords that you would get from a spy movie, you exactly. know, CIA type movie and the actual grunts, you know, the dudes who just kind of show up and do the rescues and do the shooting are just kind of shaking their heads. Vicky touched on something really interesting because I mean, Carl Weather in, in Dylan's head, he's grown up. He's become an adult. He's become dad. He'd love to be running around the jungle with the other boys doing cool stuff all day. But no, daddy's got to go to work. He's got to put on a tie, push some pencils, and uh, ultimately also kind of accept a shades of gray view of the world. Whereas Dutch and the rest of his guys get to have a very black and white you know, kind of, you know, I, I mean, if they right. are cynical, then it's just like, well, we're getting screwed over again by the man, you know, of course. Yeah. And it's like shades of First Blood Part Two, like Aliens and Alien. This movie is very much on the side of the blue collar, the people who who actually get their hands dirty and do the job. You know, the, the punch truck clock. Mm-hmm. The truckers, the soldiers, the people who actually have to go into, you know, you don't you don't give the orders. You take the orders. Yeah. Those people. A, is a very dim view of the people in the offices making the decisions. The heroism is on the side of these are orders. Well, buck us then, right? I, I think that that's a reaction to Vietnam and kind of the cynicism that came out of the 60s and 70s. Yeah, I agree with you guys that it's a great scene. I think that when Dylan tells Dutch that he's an expendable asset, he really expects him to get it. But we know by now that that's just not how Dutch operates. It's all band of brothers for him. And Dylan knew that. So at this point, I think he's just trying to appeal to the obedient soldier in Dutch now. You know, he's like, got it. He's acting like he's Dutch's commanding officer and that's all there is to it. But Dutch is kind of an independent operator in at least some key ways and definitely an independent thinker. So he's sickened by Dylan at this point. And he's, yeah. he just says, my men are not expendable and I don't do this kind of work. So we find out that there's more guerrillas coming and Anna is the prisoner that they, they take. She's the only female, it seems, in this camp or the only one to survive. And Dylan really wants to bring her along and you know Dutch is like she's your baggage you fall behind and you're on your own uh, he doesn't kowtow to his superior officer here. It's basically just saying, we we want the same things. We all want out of here, but that doesn't make you one of us. I mean, we're kind of talking about Shades of Grey versus black and white heroism. And, you know, if he truly were like just a white hat wearing cowboy, 
then of course he would want to save the girl from the camp. Yeah. But, in, but in this version of it, he's just like, no, leave her behind. I don't care. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he, when I said the Band of Brothers thing, it really is like my tribe, my people, that's who, my family. That's who yeah. I care about. Yeah, that's yeah, what motivates it's, it's him. It's the He-Man Woman Haters Club. It's like, new, girl, <laughs> new girls allowed. New girls allowed. Yeah. How could she be a sexual tyrannosaurus? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's there's some homoeroticism in this film. I think it's I, fair I, to say. I, I think it's just a dude movie, you know. Yeah. And, and, and it looks askance at the inclusion of a woman, even if we're rescuing her from from a gorilla camp. And you know, like our shades of gray, like kind of sold out guy is like, no, she's gonna is, is the person who says no, she's coming along. In Brian De Palma's predator there's probably kind of a rapey vibe if you're gonna bring along like one girl with all these hyper masculine sexual tyrannosauruses but they don't i mean there's there's not even a hint of romantic interest there's not you know what i mean there's nothing between her and dutch there's nothing yeah you have to throw a woman in there but like there's not going to be any weepy love story and there's 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 no and there's almost no acknowledgement of sex or, you know, anything like that. Yeah, she kind of uses her wiles to escape a couple of times or, you know, lure them into a, a sense of her being helpless, which she takes advantage of. But you're right. I mean, she might as well be an old lady or a 12-year-old girl. Like, there's not really a much of a love interest vibe or even a sexual vibe to her character or her role in a story. By her inclusion, they take one step toward becoming part of the jungle because she is uh she's a local you know yeah. she she knows the you know she knows the score around here and and uh like she's not gonna get lost she actually belongs here well she doesn't really serve any function though it's not like she's leading them out of the jungle or anything i mean she drops some exposition later on and we find out that she basically knows about the predator already right uh, we'll, we'll get to that so after the village, they move on and the Predator is just kind of assessing them at this point, doing some recon. And we get the another beat in the relationship arc of Dylan and Mac, where Dylan is scared of Mac and he thinks Mac might hurt him or something. And, and in fact, Dylan had a scorpion on him and Mac takes it out with his knife. I love that. Not only that subtle little poke with the, you know, he takes out this gigantic knife and he shows him the scorpion and then and then later when the Predator finds it and he's got uh, the dead scorpion in his hand, that's so fucking cool. It's man. a great image. It's, it's a classic image. So fucking cool. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a filtered shot like the Predator vision point of view of the scorpion on the Predator's hand. Infrared silhouettes and you get these long nails and thick fingers of the Predator. This scary inhuman hand. And then the kind of iconic image of the scorpion silhouette in the palm. It's just a really cool juxtaposition. Oh, speaking of that entire sequence, one thing that I noticed for the first time ever in watching this movie is a Russian dude is played by Sven Ol Thorson. It's Thorgrim from Conan the Barbarian. You're kidding, the guy that gets shot going through the papers? Yeah, uh, yeah, the, the Russian guy. It's, well, we only get different. like a split second shot of the guy, right? Yeah, well, you know, I... <laughs> <laughs> on the online with that sort of tangent, I just I, I just stumbled across this, which I find fascinating. So the country, the, the fictional country that they are in during this sequence is called Valverde. 
Valverde, and I'm reading from the Wikipedia entry, is a fictional country or city used by Hollywood filmmakers, mostly 20th Century Fox, when they require a South or Central American locale without getting into legal or diplomatic disputes. So, for instance, you can find Valverde referenced in Commando, in which the Dan Hedaya character is a former ruler of Valverde. It's in Predator. It's also in Die Hard 2. General Ramon Esperanza is from Valverde. There's a couple of other references to it. Stephen D'Souza set his Devil's Due comic book Sheena in Valverde. And just what I find interesting is that I recently moved to Santa Clarita, which is in the northern part of Los Angeles County. There is a section of... Santa Clarita called Valverde. Wow. So I'm almost certain that that's where they got the name. It's an old, it's a very, it's an old section up in the mountains and actually quite attractive, but I'm sure that's where they got it. Well, that's you, uh, you could become the ruler of Valverde. <laughs> <laughs> right. I, but all I need is a mini gun. <laughs> you two guys. You can be a tin pot dictator up there, Vic. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to go pee pee out of my pee pee hole. I'm okay. Gonna, I'm going to go drain the main vein. I'll be right. <laughs> right. Take five. Let's keep that in. Can we keep this in? All right. <laughs> well, Mike's right. doing the editing now, so that's uh, that's up to him. No one got hurt. No one slipped on anything. <laughs> no one Better had, than last time. No one ended up getting their hair wet. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, you guys ready? Yep. All right. Uh, five, four, three, two, one. And in the same scene or sequence with the Scorpion and Mac and Dylan's interchange, we get Hawkins, once again, Shane Black's character, the, the radio operator. Uh, it's like, Billy, Billy. It's really urgent that he tells Billy a joke. And it's another big pussy joke, <laughs> which I think is what makes it funny is that this guy specializes in my girlfriend has a used up pussy. <laughs> right. I, and, I think at some point in time in the past, he was able to get Billy to laugh with a joke of that nature. But he's a very discriminating dude when it comes to a pussy joke. Like he's not going to laugh at any, you know just any random pussy joke. It's got to be truly crafted comedy for this guy. <laughs> That's right. Well, he's a connoisseur of the crass pussy joke. He has to explain this one to Billy. He's like, it's because of the echo. And then Billy starts laughing and he's got a, a scary laugh, which, which again, the predator adopts. But Billy is aware that the predator is out there. We see it show up on the scene of the massacre at the village and we get these heat signatures of the recently dead men and their cooling blood, which is a great visual as the Predator is checking it all out. You hear him start talking, his making these vocalizations, warming up the pipes, calibrating them to imitate the human voice. And as he works his way closer to it, it's a very cool effect and his mimicry begins. And we get these eerie echoes of the voices. And it's, it's a, I don't think, an unintentional irony with the Echo joke, the pussy joke, and the echoes here. I think echoes are important here. These distorted, subtle, eerie echoes. Predator doesn't use that. Like, like he's not like, hey, Dutch, come over here, or anything like that. You know, includes in his arsenal. He's just kind of repeating their stuff. Uh, It's almost like he's savoring it. Uh, He's getting the scent of his prey. Yeah. Uh, And and part of me uh, wonders if he was actually ready to go home or if he was watching these guys in the camp and kind of rolling it over in his head. Okay, my God, do these guys too? And after he watches the attack on the camp, he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, these guys are going to be great. 
you know, yeah, worthy adversaries. So then they move along and we have more tension building. Blaine says that this jungle makes Cambodia look like Kansas uh, <laughs> for unspecified reasons, but it does emphasize the danger of the environment alone. We get another beat to show us how useless Dylan is in the field at this point in his career when he falls for the old, I'll throw dry leaves in your eyes trick. <laughs> and Anna takes off. <laughs> and then they get her back and Dylan is sick of having his his manhood impugned and he's like try it again please and you know he's just itching to clock this chick it's another indication of his moral turpitude in the sense that she's making him look bad i mean she didn't hurt him but he's gonna hurt her for humiliating him Moving forward, uh, we've got more hand gestures from Dutch. He's got the whole array of military hand gestures. When I was a kid, I tried to adopt all these playing guns and stuff. Did you guys ever do that? We were always walking around and holding up fists <laughs> to, to make everyone behind us stop. Yeah. And, then, and then pointing to our eyes and pointing to something else. <laughs> eyes on the target. Eyes on you. <laughs> And then, and then usually adding gestures that no one could understand. You know, you hold the you hold the finger up and turn it in a circle, and it's like, what, what does that mean? Like, I don't understand. That means uh, everybody follow me. Yeah, that means they're all around us. Basically, we have like six gestures to tell you two things: either go or stop. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's extremely rudimentary sign language. Uh, yeah. I, I would love to be in a situation in life in which I get to use hand gestures to command a group of people. <laughs> there will come that day, that day, guys. There will come that day. You're going to deploy your troops. <laughs> I'm just going to walk around. I, I'll, I'll, I'll employ like six or seven people uh, for some nefarious purpose, uh, and I'll just train them. That if I hold up a fist, then everyone has to stop and be quiet. Well, while, while I get, well, I kind of squint and listen really closely. You're going into a meeting at Paramount. Yeah, with your assistants. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, and then I kind of squint and listen really closely and kind of, <sighs> and then I spin my finger in the air, and that that means okay, yeah, we're good. Keep going. Billy is picking up on some spooky shit again. He's obviously kind of creeped out and it's not normal jungle shit or even human shit that he's picking up on. Dutch is like, what the hell is wrong with you? And he knows that Billy is not himself. And Billy finds the predator and they all kind of know it, but he can't really, you know, he's invisible. He can't point to anything. So he just says, I guess it's nothing major. Something that scares or unsettles the seven-foot-tall psychopath is like, oh, shit, what could that be? Yes, I, I, absolutely. I, this dude would, would fucking break Michael Myers over his knee for this dude to be kind of like, hmm. The you also spirit. get that when he's rubbing his lucky charm. Yeah, the great spirit is warning me. There's something out there. Yeah, exactly. I don't know right. Take so. it, everybody, everybody take a drink. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Anna then gets violent and escapes again. She clocks the somewhat dumbass radio man, Hawkins, who's probably the weak link in the group. He's the closest to Dylan in his ability, but he's just, you know, Shane Black, the radio guy. He's a red, he's a red shirt. Come on. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. So it's fitting that he is the first victim. 
The predator claims his victim at 42.05 on the clock. 42 minutes in, uh, the first member of our team goes down. It's Hawkins. He's chasing after Anna. Everybody's kind of in a more vulnerable position running through the rainforest pell-mell. It's not ideal procedure. So the predator strikes, and like a rattlesnake, it makes a sound before it strikes, which I think is really cool. And Anna kind of witnesses it when the predator kills Hawkins. And I thought, looking at it, that she'd never seen anything like this before, and maybe she hadn't seen it with her own eyes. But uh, we find out later that she's familiar with what the thing does. Poncho goes after Hawkins and finds that he's been disemboweled by the others. It happened so quickly that everyone knows that's uncanny. Like, nobody could really do that to someone that completely, where it's like, what in God's name? And he says, I think it's Hawkins. Yeah, yeah. It's immediately apparent that it's like, okay, this isn't the work of, like, random gorilla guys. Right, and they ask her what happened, and she says the jungle came alive and took him. Now, I will tell you, in college, one of my friends spoke Spanish and says that's not what she's actually saying in that scene. I don't remember what the what the actual translation was, and I don't know if either of you guys can confirm that, but I understand no. that, that they are utterly mistranslating whatever it is she's saying. Well, someone yeah. else in the scene says that's not what she said. Oh, that's right. You're right. It's Dylan. Yeah. What she Gentlemen, said I, make any sense. I am, in fact, fluent in Spanish, and I can tell you that she is telling a big pussy joke. <laughs> 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 That's the proper way to honor Hawkins' memory. <laughs> oh, you know, by the way, as a side note, many, many tears are shed when Blaine meets his end. But Hawkins, nobody really nobody blinks did. an eye. They do go after his body. That's true. I want I want Hawkins' body found. Yeah, Dutch doesn't want to leave his remains behind. Uh, that's true. Yeah, I, and that's how Dylan knew they could pull on that string. You know, we don't leave people behind. Yeah, exactly. I just had a thought that if that if she was in fact telling a big pussy joke and then Dylan says what she said doesn't make any sense if she had just said no 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 it's because of the echo <laughs> 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 that would make sense. Anyway, explain like really obvious jokes to them. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Watching like two and a half men like completely baffled. <laughs> <laughs> so we get Jesse Ventura's MTV T-shirt uh, as he takes painless through the jungle and they have a long, long pan up the tree to reveal Hawkins body. It's naked, but not of skin. It's bleeding out, but not flayed. So we don't know exactly what the plan for him was there, but there's then a quick, fairly standard issue, fake scare and then relief moment for Blaine where something comes out of the undergrowth and it's like some kind of jungle possum. Did you guys know what that was? I, I think it's quite... a javelina. Ah, yes. Yes. Javelina. Yep. Blaine is then sniped. Uh, it's an impressive display of firepower. And uh, we have Tyrannosaurus down. All the chewing tobacco in the world did not save him. He's chewed his last chaw. Mac kind of sees it, uh, the predator that is, and opens fire. He's He makes some contact and draws blood. 
And for me, when he picks up Painless, this is the most memorable use of of the weapon in the movie, where Mac just kind of takes out an acre of rainforest. We have major deforestation going on. Yeah, I sequence. love that sequence where, like, the, the, their their response to uh, to the danger is to just machine gun the jungle for like five minutes straight. <laughs> yeah, they unload <laughs> all of their ammo into the rainforest and it's kind of silly actually they run dry they they use up a lot of ammo they don't know what the hell they're shooting at and it, they don't hit anything i think they're they're reacting emotionally in the moments is what it is so like uh you know their training would tell them to you know preserve their ammunition be a little more da 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 but i i think that they're that the sequence is to show how freaked out that they are you know, uh, that, yeah, that their only response is like, let's machine gun the fuck out of the jungle. And I love it. I, I love just watching them just keep shooting and shooting and shooting, <laughs> shooting. It's like, <laughs> it's like, yeah, it really goes on. Down. It's like, I love it, man. And they see that the wound is cauterized the, in Blaine's chest. And it's like, what the hell could have done this to a man? And now Mac is rattled. He's freaked. Uh, he's no longer mentally sound, if he ever was, because uh, of all of this is outside of his realm of experience. And we learned that Mac and Blaine were really close, if you didn't already kind of get that. We see some glowing blood. You know, if, if you're looking at the alien being this sort of perfect biological system, I wouldn't say that for the Predator, because there's some disadvantages to having day glow blood. <laughs> <laughs> Both of them have weird blood, uh, and uh, that's, yeah. that's one way to establish their alienness. It's part of again what what I said earlier that that the structure of the movie follows this slow reveal of what the what the predator is, uh, and because of that invisibility, we get that you know I mean it's all right the eyes glow and we see that it, it's invisible, but we can kind of make it out in the jungle, and it's got glowing green blood, and the hands are you know sort of a different. So at this point, we still they they drop little bits of information on us, but we still don't have a complete picture of exactly what it is we're dealing with, and I think that the alien the glowing green blood, while you know sort of easy to find in a jungle does add to that mystery that it's that it's painted for us at some point in time we we're conversing with ryan murphy and was talking about predator apparently uh you know it was a completely different take on the alien uh that in which like it was actually played by jean-claude van damme in a like green suit and it was smaller and you never ever actually see it a lot of the traditional predator stuff that we identify with the alien now was the result of reshoots. You know, there's a reason why throughout a lot of the movie we don't see it. It's not only the Jaws element, it's also the fact that they shot a lot of this movie with a completely different idea for the alien. Well, it is kind of well, funny I, because it is like Jaws in the sense that the shark wasn't working and the suit right. wasn't working. So Right, yeah. And uh, I, in, in both cases, we're taking a creature feature and making it better due to uh, – we're taking lemons and turning it into a happy accent. I have heard that they actually shut down production because they couldn't they, – whatever – once you know the Van Damme suit, that stuff wasn't working. They knew it wasn't working, but they didn't know what they were going to do. And whoever the – you know I don't know if it was the effects or probably the effects guy or whoever it was. I don't know the, the Stan name. Stan Winston. Stan Winston. Well, but it wasn't it wasn't Stan Winston who was doing it. They were but so there whoever was in charge of trying to come up with a new uh design for the creature in the course of while the production was shut down wound up on a flight first class sitting next to James Cameron and was explaining, <laughs> was explaining to James Cameron the dilemma he was in and that James Cameron supposedly said to him, "You know, I've always liked mandibles." 
Huh. And that was the that was the inspiration that led him to the design of the of the predator that we eventually got. I don't that could be apocryphal. I do not know, but that's the story I heard. There's a lot of connections here with Terminator and aliens and various aspects. Of course, Arnold is as Cameron as they come. The scene that we have right after this where the wounded predator extracts a bullet is somewhat akin to the scene in the Terminator where the Terminator is kind of patching himself up. In a way, Arnold is playing not a Kyle Reese character exactly, but he's the man going up against the advanced monster. Yeah, exactly. The advanced monster, the unstoppable monster. But yeah, it's I just kind of think it's funny that there's this creature super stealthy, but it has this biological flaw that its blood could not be more conspicuous if it was on fire. <laughs> right. It also kind of reminds me, when, when you guys were kids, did you ever have, like, I don't know if it was a He-Man product, but they had, like, slime. They had this little jars of slime. that the wasn't green slime, exa- sure. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't really wet, but it was... Yeah, I had green slime. Yeah, it, it was a snot-like texture. Yeah, rubbery, and it, it kind of, this stuff reminds me of that. We get the first instance of something that is repeated several times here, which is the setting up of a fortress of sorts, the setting of claymores and whatnot in order to fortify their area and protect themselves, presumably at night. And yeah, now they're on the defensive. Exactly. And we get some dialogue again about Dylan saying that their lives aren't as important as larger objectives, and he accepts being an expendable asset. Basically, Dutch is like, in so many words, I'm, I'm, he's not what he says, but he basically indicates that you're not the big picture idealist that you're trying to portray yourself as. Dutch knows that Mac is compromised at this point. They interrogate Anna again. She says the exact same thing again. Bill Duke is great in the yeah. sequence where, uh, where he's shaving, kind of whispering to himself. Yeah. I, that's great stuff. I love that. Billy is is cracking up. He's like, we're all going to die. You know, these are in quiet ways. These guys are cracking up. Nobody is going the Hudson route. That's for sure. It is telling when uh, Bill Duke's razor breaks against his face. Yes. But like yes. He, he's shaving. Yeah. He's shaving so hard that he breaks a razor and yeah. leaves a little uh, cut of blood. I'm just like, oh, dude, that's I, I, it's 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 simple, but it's so fucking clever. That's good filmmaking, guys. Yeah, it is. The traps are triggered. Predator takes damage and squeals like a pig. Oh, wait, no, it's not him squealing like a pig. We have an actual pig and Mac kills this thing. And Billy's creepy laugh again as he you know, kind of makes fun of Mac for going uh, to the mattresses on this pig. That poor pig. We've got Anna whimpering at this point. She's not exactly Ripley, this girl. It is. Wait, I would like to point out the pig is the closest thing we get to a cat in this <laughs> yes. movie. The, you know, it's not quite a jump scare exactly, but the you know the notion that oh, it's not actually the the alien; it's a otherwise right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, 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 it's the deep jungle version of a cat in the closet. Exactly. Well, I, I think it would be funny to do uh, a beat in which, like, uh, you have a character in a house and they open a closet and a pig jumps out like a duck, <laughs> like a duck just <laughs> flapping out of the closet. The, the duck in the closet beat that or, old saw. Yeah, old duck in the closet, hey. Eh? <laughs> or alternatively, if the Colonial Marines had stabbed Jonesy to death in the middle of the night. I would have liked that. There's a beat where Drake was going to shoot Newt upon first sight. Yeah, there's an alternate version of that story going down. (laughs) (laughs) You just shot a little girl. Congratulations. And then we have to deal with his guilt, and and, and Vasquez has to try to talk him through it. And it's a very different. He's crying. 
Yeah. <laughs> you look like my little sister. Yeah, she's uh, just local. She, she's no one special. And I, I think that's her function in the story. Is, I mean, she's just like the normal person who just kind of lives in the neighborhood. And she's like, yeah, every once in a while this invisible guy shows up and murders people. Well, she starts speaking English at this point. Yeah. Dutch takes it seriously. They kind of connect at this point as she tells him about the blood. And we get maybe the most iconic line in the whole film, which is, if it bleeds, we can kill it. I actually think that the most iconic line is, when the big man was killed, you must have wounded it. Sorry, we used to do that a lot in college. (laughs) (laughs) If blood was on the leaves... Anyways. In movies, if a character doesn't know how to speak English, they know how to speak English. Yeah. They're just trying to be clever and get right. people to say stuff. Right. And Billy suggests that the their enemy is a hunter, and this clicks with Dutch. It's another piece of the puzzle for him. It leads him to the idea that uh, he's using the trees, as hunters do. We also get the predator patching himself up gig, which I, I also love. I, I like just watching him bust out his alien version of a first aid kit mm-hmm. and sprinkle the shit in the wound and he goes, you know, it's like, dude, <laughs> it's the alien version of spraying himself with the iodine or bactine, you know? <laughs> yeah, he, he he doesn't handle his pain very in a macho way, does he? He just, he just yeah, screams the, like a little girl. The only thing that would have made it better is if he had pulled a, a bullet out of his arm and then like dropped it into a, you know, there's always like a metal bowl nearby when people <laughs> pull bullets out of each other so it can go clink. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Well, then if the predator like went to a sink and splashed water in his face and then stared into his own dripping reflection. <laughs> <laughs> Wondering, you know, trying to get himself together. Wondering how he came to this place. He needs, a, he needs a shower too, right? Does he have to? Does, does he have to take a shower and watch the blood swirl down the drain? And oh, then right, he right. No, and then we cut to him lying on a couch with all of these empty whiskey bottles and yeah. you know, <laughs> empty pizza boxes on the on the uh, floor around him. The, the empty pizza boxes and the uh, uh, and the dead beer cans is yeah. a sure sign of uh, moral decay. <laughs> Yeah. Let's give it up in life. Okay, so now Dutch has a plan, and they're preparing a better trap than we had last night, apparently. And I do think I want to call attention to the repetition of beats here, that on three occasions, the idea is, maybe even more, I, they're like, all right, let's set up some traps. And by the time that we get to Dutch just setting up different traps at the end, it still feels a little bit redundant to me. Full of unusually strong vines. <laughs> These are tough vines, man. I, and unless you chop them, and then they're full of vine jizz, and then it could, right. quench, it could quench your jungle thirst. Hey, remember, sure. this place makes Costa Rica look like Kansas. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Although, uh, you know what's another movie that has booby traps? Conan the Barbarian. It would have been funny if the uh, the Russian guy, like, survived, only to, like, blunder into the jungle and get, like, a giant wooden spike through his chest. <laughs> ah! 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 I yeah, I guess, I guess Conan does. <laughs> <laughs> I love the sound that, that, that he makes when he gets spiked. <laughs> it stares at him. Yeah. I like the there is a self-sufficiency to the traps that I think because you're right that they do repeat that beat, but the traps get less technological. They yeah. become more simple to the point where they're, you know, I mean, by the end, Arnold's a, Arnold's a caveman. These are a little more sophisticated. We've got nets and tripwires and that sort of thing. But by the end, it's just vines and sticks and rocks. 
Yeah, and so I, they they do repeat it, but they become more simple, more basic, more primal, uh, and I think that reflects the the where the where the conflict is going. I mean, it's a movie that celebrates strength as a virtue. It also celebrates a primal ferocity, simplicity. The guns don't work, the claymores don't work, but you know what will work is uh, mud and a stick and a rock and a trap. No. Yeah. It is also that whole scene of them is just muscle porn too. Like it's just these guys with their <laughs> shirts off. Like uh, you know, it looks it looks like a Mister Universe calendar while they're hoisting. <laughs> <laughs> mm. It's also a little bit like the welding up of operations in Aliens, where they're all working yeah. together, preparing for their own last stand. And like Burke, Dylan is skeptical, but ultimately pitches in to help get their siege defense in order. The one thing that is kind of Burke-like about him in this whole part of the movie is that he's constantly just sort of sarcastically undermining and questioning what Dutch is doing in this sort of bitchy way. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, it just occurred to me that, uh, you know, those kids probably would have survived in a uh, Blair Witch Project if instead of just sitting in their tents, they would have set up some fucking booby traps, man. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't have they like, you need you need really strong vines. You don't get that in Maryland. <laughs> yeah. Well, they, they could have dug a punji pit. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. It's like, got a witch. Uh, but then as soon as they got scared in the middle of the night, they'd run right out and fall into it. Yeah, they should have said a broom or a black cat as uh, as bait, and then she fall and then she falls into the tiger pit lined with spikes. <laughs> so uh, we've got about forty minutes of movie left at this point, which I thought was kind of interesting because this feels like like Aliens. There's a really long Act Three in this film, mm. uh, or a series of building late late Act Two. Uh, extended sequences that feel like all one big act three. And we get some more dialogue from Anna about the Predator, and he's been coming here for a long time during the hot years, and it's a hot year this year. So it looks like with global warming, we're going to see a lot more of the Predator from now on, guys. You you were worried about tsunamis. How about Predators, homeboy? (laughs) (laughs) I am not a Predator denier, I believe. Yeah. Al, Al Gore better watch his ass, man. He's going to get an invisible dildo up his keister hole. <laughs> so he's been making trophies of man. Like that's the, the, the translation of what the the people call the predator. I think in comic book land, they call it, they call them the Yaucha. It's something like, yeah, it, it translates to the hunter who makes trophies of men. El Cazador Trofeo de los Hombres. <laughs> mm. And that's a mouthful. So yes. right after that, he gets the predator gets snared in a net. And it sounds a lot like the alien when it screams here, I thought. Kind of like in aliens, aliens, where a lot of things that the Marines do kind of backfire and have these like chain reactions that end to their own people getting hurt. Poncho gets one of the traps right in the chest and pretty yeah. much takes him out. We get a glimpse of the predator here when his camo system is damaged. I think this is the first look that we get mm-hmm. at the Predator. Um, well, no, don't see him when he when he's repairing, when he uh, uh, pulls the bullet out? Yeah, maybe a, a little bit. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. I think his, his system is, his camo system is always on the fritz. So yeah. So you get various glimpses of him. But Mac runs off into the jungle after 
the predator. He's singing long, tall Sally. He's repeating, I got you. And he's off the reservation at this point. And yeah. the predator seems Don't to say be that around tree. Billy. He'll get offended. <laughs> he'll get triggered. <laughs> Not he'll, he'll trigger. reservation. You'll, you'll trigger Billy. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's, it's, you know, it's like a, it's like a dinner reservation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Dylan goes after Mac. There's a weird bond between these two guys. I, I feel like maybe Dylan feels like he owes Mac for the scorpion thing. You know, he saved him from the scorpion. Maybe he's trying to prove himself to Mac. But this decision doesn't go well for Dylan. Mac is like, you know, plowing through the jungle going, I'm going to have me some fun. I'm going to have me some fun. This crazed litany. Dylan comes along. Mac drags him into his little duck blind and points out the, the predator. I see you. And Dylan sees it too, and it kind of feels like he's buying into Max crazy, like just how the the, the beat plays. But no, mm-hmm. Predator's really there, and uh, Dylan kind of formulates a plan. I feel like this sort of sacrificial beat that he's going through when you know he basically says that he wants his own payback here in so many words. I think he does feel responsible for the dead. I think he's like if Burke felt bad about sending those colonists out and getting them killed. Like, I feel like the guys, Hopper, Jim Hopper and his team that he sent out to find the CIA guys uh, and then they got killed. He has his own desire to pay back the the aliens in this case for what for, you know, claiming lives that he's that's what makes Dylan closer to Gorman. Like he used to be a tough guy. He used to be a friend of Dutch, someone that Dutch could uh, respect and trust. You know, he, he became compromised along the way, but he's still that guy underneath it, whereas Burke is, you know, kind of a sleazy cat from from day one. Right. More like Darth Vader. This is the, you know, he used to be one of the good guys. He went over to the dark side, but he gets his redemption by sacrificing himself in trying to save the other team. I don't know if you guys used to watch uh, Arrested Development at all, but when uh, Carl Weathers would show up and uh, offer his acting classes, uh, they would always cut to him getting his arm blown off in front of him. <laughs> right. right. Scotty was, was funny on that, too. Yeah, wasn't he the expert of getting free shit? Yes. Was... You get, now you got a stew going. <laughs> yeah, he's fantastic. So here's where that iconic three-beamed laser sight makes its debut. It appears on Mac's arm and then his forehead. Boom. We basically see the blast go right through his head. The Predator just totally sniffed out Mac's location and executes him. Leaving him with zero hit points. Yes. yes. Yeah. And leaving Dylan on his own. And I think he does somewhat serve a purpose here because he buys them, I guess, a little more time as the others are trying to get to the chopper. And Arnold has figured out that being a non-combatant will save you. So he tells uh, Anna to leave the gun and he says, it didn't kill you. It didn't kill you because you weren't armed. No sport. And Dylan keeps going. Intercutting between these two sequences is kind of exciting, and it builds this pall of doom for for Dylan as he sees Mac dead. And we know he's there's no way he's going to be able to. Yeah, it would have been perfect if the predator had grabbed Dylan, and as Dylan is struggling with him, he reaches down and pulls out a sharpened pencil and stabs him with it. <laughs> well, that's kind of what he does because he uses his yeah. Wolverine claws to. Uh, to, to spike through Dylan's chest. Right. But uh, yeah, too much paper pushing for Dylan. He stands his ground, though, when he makes eye contact with the Predator. 
whose eyes glow in the sequence. And he just yeah. starts opening fire, emptying his magazine into it. Doesn't even try to duck or dodge out of the line of fire. And he just absorbs its laser blast and this very memorable image of his arm coming off. And it continues to pull the trigger. The gun keeps firing. Oh, dude, that's so fucking brilliant. Yeah. The severed yeah. arm still shooting the gun. Oh, my God. That's so great. Well, and there's something, too, for me, he comes as close as anybody does before Dutch, that if he just if he's able to swing his arm around a little bit faster, he's going to get some real shots into the into the Predator. And we've already learned at this point, the Predator is not bulletproof. I mean, I, I always as a kid, I always remember thinking like, you know, it's kind of sad when Dylan dies in this redemptive moment. But by God, he was a good soldier and he almost got it. Well, it's, it's not that easy when you have one arm, I guess, to to battle the predator. That should be part of your training is to battle predators in, in boot camp with one arm. <laughs> yeah. Just in case. So it's somewhat of a brave but pointless last stand for Dylan in that, you know, he, he doesn't take the thing out. But it's Billy's turn and he knows it. So he throws his gun in the river and strips down. And I always thought this was kind of silly and his death is kind of lame because he does have a big knife. It's like a machete sized knife. But this character doesn't even rate a death scene. Apparently he's killed that quickly off camera. We're talking about a movie that pushes in the direction of simplicity, primalness, uh, strength as a virtue. Within the themes of the film, his actions make complete sense. And uh, one would think that because, you know, the Predator likes a sporting thing, it's not going to just blow his head off with a laser, which is what any intelligent Predator would do. He's kind of hoping to lure it into like a knife fight on that log. I would have loved to have seen that knife fight. I would have loved to have seen that sequence. Well, as a kid, that's what I wanted for sure. Instead, we just get him getting his spine ripped out a little bit. Ah! Yeah, Yeah, he's not. That's the sound I would make, by the way, if my spine was ripped out. But um, (laughs) my spine, (laughs) my spine. (laughs) Yeah, uh, Billy is not the star of the film. Arnold is so. But at the same time, like if you could have taken three minutes out of that 20 minute final mano a mano between the Predator and Schwarzenegger uh, and, and given it to Billy. I think that might have actually benefited the film. but Because uh, it gets a, it goes on a long time. There's a lot of creeping yeah. around under logs and stuff. Next is Poncho. He gets it. And he wasn't brandishing a weapon, if I'm not mistaken. He's just kind of being carried along. I guess that breaks the MO of, of the Predator a little bit. And immediately after that, Arnold won't, again, won't let Anna use a gun. I think he was carrying a gun because that's the gun that Anna reaches for. Mm, right, because it becomes available. Arnold has his gun. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think and you're right. Sorry. No, that that's probably true. I mean, he's. I guess he's toting the gun along, mm-hmm. so makes sense. But. Arnold uh, is is wielding this awesome. I don't know if it's an M16 with a grenade launcher or it's actually a M something else. Did you guys ever know what that was? I don't know. Oh, it's the gun on the cover of the poster. Mm-hmm. That's what he's got. Well, and it's also GI <sighs> Joe made this gun. I forget what character had it, but yeah. I had one of these, like the little gray GI Joe gun that I love oh, yeah. of this film. Um, it, it looks like a just a bigger M16, uh, probably something we could look up. But he loses it right away because Arnold takes a, a glancing shot 
um, from the laser and it disarms him, but not literally in his case, which is fortunate. And he gets to utter the classic line that I will leave to you guys um, involving finding their way to their transportation. Mike, you get on the boats. Sometimes <laughs> <laughs> the boss is leaving. <laughs> get in the truck right away. Climb onto my unicycle. <laughs> Not tomorrow. <laughs> yes, he says something. Get in about my wheelbarrow it. in the immediate future. <laughs> <laughs> He urges Anna to forge ahead. And yes. we have 20 minutes of the movie left, and it's about the same length of an act three as Aliens, and we have an extended showdown with the hero and the antagonist being the focal point. And in this case, the dramatic stakes are a little lower, I guess, in, in, at least on a personal level. Aunt Arnold's stakes are trying to save Anna, and she's not exactly a new level character but he also it's just revenge you know he's motivated yeah. by revenge a lot of crazy action stuff he falls into a chasm it's pure luck that he survives because he lands into a deep river he even goes over a waterfall safely or at least his stunt double goes over the waterfall safely and then dutch crawls out of the river into some very thick wet mud he's very weak and he's crawling away when the predator hits the water and like jaws comes underwater towards him he's coated in mud but otherwise helpless is dutch uh but he's lucky again because not only does the camouflage system short out again revealing the predator um when the predator finds a helpless dutch he doesn't see him because he has ir vision and dutch is covered in mud so this liability this achilles heel of the creature comes into effect, and I always thought that was really cool. Doesn't Rambo also get coated in mud or covers yeah. himself in mud as a camouflage? And uh, I have always laughed at the beat, just uh, where Schwarzenegger is made just to inform the cheap seats what's going on. Yes. He can't see me. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I, it, exactly. it's hilarious. He goes through this elaborate look at the mud, and then he makes the comment, he couldn't see me. Just, just in case there are those in the audience who are as equally baffled by big pussy jokes as they are by <laughs> cause and effect in cinematic language. What he said doesn't make any sense. I think it's very smart the way they handle it. It's, it's organic the way they handle it. It doesn't feel like an eye roller where you're like, oh, you know, now he's got the secret weapon. He needs to kill the predator. I like the way that they work that information in. Again, even if they hit it too too much on the nose when they get there. Yeah. It's one of the things that makes us feel like a smart movie. Yeah, the idea of it is smart. So now we have a ne yet another scene of our hero preparing traps, but they're again they're all natural. No claim claymores or wires here. He's working hard through the night, fashioning a bow and arrow. And meanwhile, we're intercutting to the predator who's taking his trophies from Billy's remains and caressing his skulls. And Dutch is putting on war paint. We're building to the final confrontation in kind of a cool sequence. Dutch literally puts on his game face by adding mud as if it was war paint. And again, in this case, you have to go primal, not more technological. That's the way to, to defeat your adversary. Dutch wins ultimately because he gets hipster traps. They're uh, all organic and locally sourced. <laughs> <laughs> 
Absolutely. His carbon footprint in this film is actually quite small. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. This is his character arc. He's he's going to go join Greenpeace after this film. Yeah. He's actually going to gentrify this section of the jungle. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to open a tea shop. Yes. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, a tea shop and a 99C theater. And, and Anna will wind up protesting. <laughs> He'll say, well, what about this handmade candle I can offer you? Yes. <laughs> that change your Get attitude. The now! <laughs> yeah. So he's like a caveman bellowing with his torch. He's beckoning an invitation to the predator to come after him. The predator uses his laser to sharpen his claws. Takes his time, actually, to accept the invite. It's well after dawn when he shows up and he comes in behind a mud-encrusted Dutch, goes right by him. And fortunately, the predator's other senses aren't all that keen because he doesn't notice Dutch in any other way. He doesn't hear him or smell him or something like that. Uh, even as Dutch swings by on one of those yeah, industrial strength lines. Te- yeah, he's relying on technology. Yeah. And, so, and, and it's interesting that the hunters become the hunted and then the hunter in turn becomes hunted. It, it goes a, back and cool. forth a couple of times in the film. Yeah, it, it is interesting, though. We get the IR vision even after he takes off his helmet. So I believe that that's supposedly just how the Predator sees. It wasn't like a a technological device, wasn't the helmet. There's a fire there, which Dutch has set, and apparently it gives the not 100% effective camouflage system some trouble. Dutch gets a beat on the Predator with a bow and arrow, uh, hits a bomb, shorts out the camo system yet again, and now the Predator is kind of in the situation that they were in earlier where the Predator can't see him, so it just starts blazing away and takes down trees left and right with its laser cannon. There's a fireworks display. Dutch escapes, but he's injured. He hides under a log. Predator gets by, again, doesn't see him, goes past and doesn't see him. He throws a rock to lure uh, the Predator's attention, and even though the Predator uses um, heat vision, he shoots the rock, and Dutch uses a boom spear of some kind and a sharp spear to injure the Predator. Uh, There's a very easy trail to follow. The hunter is now absolutely the hunted. We get a a lot of cat and mouse. Dutch ends up back at the river. Uh Uh-oh. Falls into the waters. Mud is washed off. And now the predator has turned the tables. It's got him dead to rights. It could kill him. At one point, it retracts one of its claws and just kind of pins his neck down with the the two outside claws. Why do you think, guys, that the predator did not kill him at that point. Well, he's toying with his prey. Right. Like I disagree. This is, I think, one of the, the most brilliant aspects of the script because this is where the predator ceases to be just an alien and becomes a character. I think it doesn't kill him because it respects him. It respects the fight that he's put up. It, he's been on the run. I mean, how uh, you wonder how long Jim Hopper can get him on the run. Arnold is deserving of his respect. He doesn't want this to go. He, he, he's savoring this. He doesn't want it to go this quickly. Arnold deserves a fair shot. Um, well, yeah, I, mean, I, I think the Predator sees that Arnold is unarmed, and so he disarms himself. Like, he takes off his laser cannon and throws it in the water. 
uh, he takes off his helmet. He's like, all right, we'll just go toe to toe. You know, at this stage that he wants to have a really kick ass story to tell when he goes back to his home plant and sits down with his buddies. Yeah. And then like, I mean, he got me dead to rights, man. And like, I could have killed him. And you know what I did? I took off my shit and I just beat him to death with my, my fists. And everyone's going to be like, oh, dude, you're awesome. Blah. You know, he would keep Dutch Schaefer's skull in a place of honor above the mm-hmm. alien head. He'd keep it in the cupboard and drink out of it for his morning coffee. <laughs> There's something to the predator civilization that reminds me of the Klingons. This is about honor. Dutch has earned a good death, not just a claw through the throat. Let's see what you've really got. Yeah, the Predator is kind of like a Klingon samurai. Yeah. He has a certain code of honor that he needs to uphold, and he's not going to do certain things, much the way that Dutch won't do that either when he has the Predator a bit later completely defeated because of one of these very ideally placed booby traps, and he could just crush the Predator's head with a rock, but Dutch won't do that. Well, and I think it compares to the, again, the climate, some of the climactic scene in, in Aliens in that the alien queen reveals herself to have these motherly instincts in the same way that Ripley does. It's a sense in which when we get to this moment in both of these movies, the big bad guy reveals themselves to not just be mindlessly evil, but to actually be a character, even though they have no dialogue to speak of. I mean, that's smart writing. It is. It is. And my favorite beat in this whole part of the movie is along those lines. It's when after Predator kicks his ass around the parking lot. I mean, he just like a bully beating up. Uh, he, he's totally too powerful and in better condition than than a wounded Dutch at this point. And Dutch kind of leads him into one of the traps, but the Predator doesn't fall for it. There's this great moment where you can just see the Predator kind of the wheels turning and he's kind of thinking about it and he's not in a big hurry and he just goes around it. You know, I love yeah. that moment. Um, it's it's also course, where we get, do it! Do it now! <laughs> I'm here! Kill me! Come on! Do it! Yeah. <laughs> uh, Arnold is so good in this movie. He really is. Oh, yeah. 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 But that, of course, leads to Arnold still managing to have outsmarted the Predator when the Predator leaps up and over the log. And Arnold, it's great because when you watch Arnold's face, you see that he's clearly forgotten that he hoisted that giant stone up into the trees with the titanium vines. That is kind of the other message of this film is guns don't matter. You know, you can be a super big, tough guy. It doesn't matter. It really always does come down to wits. Yeah. And, uh, you know, your strength is uh, an addendum to that. Apparently we can have two traps positioned in one spot and arrange a very specific scenario, which the Predator then helpfully stands in the right spot to make go off without a hitch. And the rock or the log or whatever that it is drops on him. The second trap that Dutch can trigger from this exact place, Predator's all fucked up at that point. He's bleeding like a a stuck pig, but Dutch won't kill a downed and helpless enemy. Predator mumbles some stuff and he opens his wrist thing. Dutch lets him do this. He sets this countdown, more shades of alien, and then we have a a self-destruct sequence that comes into effect. And the thing gives um, that big laugh, Billy's big, scary laugh. And you kind of think, uh-oh, Dutch gets away. Not much really comes of this. Like, there's not a lot. We need to end the movie at this point. So um, there's not a lot of suspense about whether or not Dutch will get clear. But there's a big mushroom cloud that the chopper general and the general and Anna are on this chopper. And they see that. And 
they're returning to the battlefield. They find Dutch standing in the smoke and patriotic music returns and it's day again. And it's been like two days since Dutch and Anna separated, but she came back for him. And it's, it's a, it's a glorious moment of man, you know, prevailing over the longest of odds. I mean, the radiation probably is going to, is going to just ruin his sperm count for the rest of his life. But <laughs> Dutch is going to have to adopt. Dutch is going to the hairs. You know, there's going to be issues down the road. But for now, Dutch Dutch survive. Get to the fertility clinic now. <laughs> Let me ask you this. I mean, is the is the predator just a sore loser? Like, is that why he does it, or is it like is there is there some code that he can't be discovered there? The evil laugh kind of suggests that he thinks he's getting the last laugh and he's going to take yeah. Dutch down with him. Oh, 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 oh. I, I love how it echoes. It, yeah. it follows yeah. Dutch the jungle as he runs away. Oh, 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 oh. Again, the sound, the sound design is really fantastic in this movie. Yep, and then they have a reprise of the main theme, that classic main theme, and we cut to a closing title sequence that features each character, most of them looking into the camera directly, which is kind of funny, except for Dutch. And uh, Kevin Peter Hall, who ultimately took over for a fired Jean-Claude Van Damme and played the Predator, does not get one of those. And uh, it's sad on a couple of levels. I'm sure you guys know that he got AIDS and died at 35. Wow. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Holy cow. Yeah. Yeah. He was Harry from Harry and the Hendersons and, you know, seven foot two guys are kind of in short supply. So he kind of had a stranglehold on these type of roles and, you you know, he really had a great presence. Uh, Yeah. Obviously it's tragic if he, he didn't, that he died in that way, but we also kind of lost a a pretty, you know, good actor. So this is that sequence, that final sequence kind of makes me think that this is uh, with all the characters being given screen time again and their names and everything. It's kind of like a Dirty Dozen movie in some ways, this film. It kind of harkens back to that. Hey, it was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed it. I didn't feel that it lost anything over the year since I've seen it the last time. I think this is... It's it's more dated than Aliens, but one of the reasons I'll always associate these two films is that I think coming in successive years, both of them hold up really, really well. If anything, I actually longed to have movies like this again. I think part of it is just the era, though. I mean, this was a time when movie stars looked like Sylvester Stallone and looked like Arnold Schwarzenegger we don't have movie stars like that anymore. And I think action in general, I think action swayed much more towards martial arts. I mean, starting probably with the matrix, the idea of just showing up and shooting a bunch of guys stopped being an acceptable or not acceptable, but stopped being interesting enough to bring in an action audience. We wanted to see wire work. We wanted to see Kung Fu. We wanted to see Tony John and Jet Li and, and that kind of stuff. I mean, I think the genre just moved on. That makes sense. Yeah, I mean, they're they're dinosaurs at this point. Guys like Sly and Arnold and Van Damme. And, you know, it def- definitely has an old-fashioned vibe in more ways than one. But I do think that these two films, Aliens and Predator, and, of course, Alien, they stand out as 
in a sea of films that are very dated, it's pretty hard to be truly timeless, and they are. And also, I don't think we've seen aliens of any kind. I use that in the generic term because the Predator and the quote-unquote alien are aliens. I don't think we've had anything with this originality and awesome, iconic design since then. So the Predator and the alien you know, remain kind of in a league of their own as cinematic creations. At least we'll always have Predator to, to look back on yes. uh, and remember that this is what it used to be like. It's been a pleasure, guys. Uh, looking forward to our next one. Uh, why don't you guys sign off and offer any final thoughts or, or just your farewell, starting with you, Vic? Um, <laughs> I, I mean, it's look, th- this is one of those movies that I think like Aliens that I watch I can watch once a year and I probably do watch about once every year, once every two years. And I've seen it dozens of times. It never ceases to bring me joy, uh, which is, uh, I think about the best compliment you can pay on a, on a movie. Um, and so God bless it. It's, it's great to, it's great to watch again. It's great to talk about because there are enough lay, uh, layers that it really does merit the unpacking that uh, we give it here on the franchise guys. Mike. Nice way to work in the title of the show, Vic. Very nice. Very smooth. <laughs> I dug that. I'm going to try that. I'm going to try All that right. from now on. Here on the franchise, guys, I'm about to make a uh, somewhat controversial statement. And that statement is, I think Predator is a pretty good movie. <laughs> I know there, there's Hold a lot the phone. Of pro, yeah, there's a lot of pro and con. You know, the phone banks are going to light up. You know, the, the comment section is going to get spicy. I'm going to take a stand. I'm going to plant a flag right here on the franchise, guys. I'm going to say, if you haven't seen Predator, you should take a look at this. And uh, if you haven't seen Predator, I have absolutely no idea why you would listen to a two and a half hour long podcast about that movie. <laughs> that would be hilarious if somebody's like, yeah, oh, spoilers. Like, you know, listen to this entire podcast and go, you know, I think I'm going to check this out. <laughs> well, my final thought is just that. Uh, What's awesome about both these series is that they they make Jaws the hero in a sense, the way that we make Jason Voorhees the hero eventually in Friday the 13th. I mean, these films are called Alien and Predator, not Dutch and Ripley, even though I think that would make a really good early 70s cop show. You know, this week on Ripley and Dutch, the boys discover that the new divorcee in town is a mob boss. ABC yeah. fan, 8 p.m. <laughs> Go watch Prider and drink some beer while you're doing it with uh, Vic's uh, drinking game. I don't know. I think we should stick around. Now it's time to get to the chopper now. <laughs> all right, guys. Peace out. Peace. Adios. Uh, thank you all for listening. Okay, goodbye. Goodbye.